Welcome back to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Rogers. And on today's episode, it is my honor to invite a team of Indigenous Christians from various parts of Canada. And we're going to talk about what it means to be Indigenous or an Aboriginal person living in Canadian cities. Uh, Stats Canada uses the term Aboriginal and Indigenous to refer to people that are First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. It is estimated that about one half live in urban areas as compared to those living on reservation land and non-urban areas. Now, uh, I'm also a multi-generation Canadian living in an urban center, uh, but uh, I have uh, no Indigenous uh, heritage that I'm aware of. Therefore, I will not presume to be my brother's white savior and state clearly that there is no white savior. I only know of one savior and he's from the Middle East and uh, he's the one that brings us together today. So welcome, gentlemen. Jim Thunder, uh, love the name, by the way. Uh, you must be one of the sons of Thunder and uh, James. <laughs> And uh, so tell us uh, about yourself. Great. Um, yeah, so Sons of Thunder, we get that quite a bit. Absolutely love, uh, you know, the, the blessing of having that Thunder last name, you know. So it's uh, Sons of Thunder, something that uh, we wouldn't buy all through Bible college. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, Boju Nandishnikaz. Uh, Jim Thunder, uh, sorry, Bonjour, Jim Thunder, and Dish Satchiko Lake Nindunji. My name is Jim Thunder from Satchiko Lake, First Nation in Ontario. And uh, I guess, um, so yeah, so I, I grew up uh, mostly in Sulacauk. So I'm from Satchiko Lake, but I spent most of my uh, uh, growing, growing years in uh, Sulacauk. My dad, Max Thunder, the late Max Thunder, was a pastor, and uh, my uncle, Lot Thunder, was a, a traveling minister. And so uh, used to travel from, you know, ages as early as four or five. I can remember traveling with my dad to different First Nations. Uh, he would be called to preach. And uh, so grew up, grew up doing that. Um, as we went older, he, uh, he encouraged us to, to stay in school. We went to uh, Bible colleges. And so I went to Horizon College and Seminary first. And, uh, and then after that, I went to uh, Providence uh, University College, and uh, so two different Bible colleges. Uh, when it was done there, I uh, went to South Korea, and I was I was working there, uh, filling my TESOL practicum, but also doing some mission work at a, at a Korean church. And so uh, so went out, and I did some work as a youth pastor of their church for the time that I was there. Uh, we also did some ministry, some evangelism. Uh, where we did that in the Korean language. Uh, so making use of, of the language that I learned over that period of time. Came back here, was youth pastor for a little bit and uh, was involved in uh, different different uh, initiatives uh, with, with various churches. And uh, after a while, I decided it was time to go back to school and I worked on my MBA. So I finished my master's degree in business administration. And uh, that opened up some, some other doors uh, for ministry, including working at uh, Horizon College and Seminary as an adjunct professor. And so uh, 
I, uh, in my first course, I interviewed Dan a little bit just to, just to do some research. And uh, so that, that's a good connection there. But, uh, but yeah, so, so since that time, I've been teaching indige Indigenous ministry every year since then. And so we teach students about uh, the, the basics of reconciliation, understanding Indigenous peoples, and, uh, and just how to, how to uh, understand uh, how, to be, how to be brothers and sisters in Christ in the middle of all of this. Uh, I am now working as the Director of Economic Development for Norway House Cree Nation. And uh, we, are, we are a community that has uh, a really strong Christian presence. And, uh, and aside from that, I'm also teaching at the U of M, Indigenous Economic Leadership. And so, yeah, that's me in a quick nutshell. Dan Collado, uh, you and I get to work together at some of the same tables with Mission Canada, where you're the Indigenous, uh, Indigenous Canada, Canada Connect yes. at Mission Canada. So, um, why don't you uh, introduce yourself, Dan, and tell us a bit about your ministries? Sure thing. Um, yeah, so I grew up in a mixed uh, cultural heritage. My, uh, on my father's side is Puerto Rican. My, uh, on my mother's side is Mohawk um, from uh, Bay of Quinney Mohawks in Tyendinaga. Um, so... Uh, I, I kind of, I grew up people thinking I, I'm Italian, uh, <laughs> looking at me, and um, my last name, Collado, which is actually Spanish, Collado, uh, but it's been anglicized over the years, um, but uh, grew up, went to, went to Bible college, uh, pastored up in uh, northern Ontario in the OG Cree community, uh, Wiegamo Lake, formerly known as Round Lake. Um, up near the stomping grounds of, of Levi Beardy. Um, but then following that was up in Rankin Inlet, Nunavut uh, for 10 years, uh, pastored there along with my wife. And um, after, after those 10 years, came back down uh, south and um, went on staff to, to, to pastor here in my hometown that I kind of grew up in, in Napanee, which is kind of like right next door to Deseronto and Tyendinaga uh, territory. Um, but then um, really was still feeling that the call of God to cross-cultural ministry. Um, never got involved in indigenous ministry specifically because I was, uh, I was indigenous, but I just opened my heart to the Lord asking, um, Lord, wherever there's a, wherever there's a need, uh, I'm willing to go. And it just seemed once I prayed that prayer, um, the Lord kept opening indigenous doors to me. Um, so there was the, the two pastorates up in Northern Canada. Um, and then uh, after coming down South, uh, took on the role that I'm currently holding as director of Aboriginal Bible Academy, which is a distance education training center. Uh, um, but then uh, also uh, since like really, I guess the fall of 2019 have been the, uh, the Indigenous Canadians coordinator for uh, Mission Canada with the PAOC. So it's, uh, it's been uh, a, a wonderful journey, uh, just exploring what the Lord has, uh, uh, has for me and my family, for my wife and I, and uh, we've enjoyed uh, walking it together with uh, 
the pathways within an indigenous context, certainly. Uh, we're going to uh, also hear from our third guest now and uh, have him uh, introduce himself, uh, Levi Beardy. Can you hear me okay? You sound wonderful, Levi, and you oh, look good, super, look pretty good. good. I wish all my congregants would say that. Sound wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how much you lost out of my beginning, but Levi Sampson Beardy is my name from originally born in Bearskin Lake, Ontario, where the military went last month to, uh, to help people during their time of crisis. And so I was born there way back when. And um, as I said earlier, we, we call ourselves the Ininuwag in that area, that, but we are in considered Ojikri, and the language we speak is a Severn River dialect of the uh, uh, Soto. Um, now, um, something, don't mind my stuttering. I haven't been preaching that much lately, so. <laughs> So my, That's okay. my speaking things are, are a little bit shaky. Um, with Bearskin, was something amazing happened. I was there for a funeral in October, and I was talking with one of the leaders, and, and I said, what would be the possibility of sending some, some food up here? So that was in October. Uh, so, uh, so I said about doing it, and I called Wasea, and Wasea said, we'll send 5,500 we'll pounds free. That's about $10,000, $11,000 worth of, uh, of, of food and clothing. So I got together stuff and ended up having 14000 raised. And I said, well, we'll get it to Thunder Bay and we'll figure out how to get it up after Wasea takes the 5500 But because of Christmas and COVID, uh, they couldn't do it. So I said, so... Uh, and, and they said, with all that you have, that's about $30,000 worth of freight costs to get it up, up, up to the reserves. And so, uh, so, so, so we were praying, trying to figure out, okay, GoFundMe page maybe and so on. And then the crisis happened. And, uh, and uh, amazing things happened with other people doing GoFundMe pages and so on. So I was wondering what to do. And uh, a friend of mine uh, who, who was, I guess, a brother-in-law, Greg Monroe and a friend of his, Ed Mickelson, run a trucking company that clears rope to the, the ice roads. And he says, we'll take them for free. So wow. they, they just arrived there two days ago in Bearskin and the girls were there, ladies were there just modeling the crows, having a great time and enjoying all the food and other stuff that was there. So so that's a miracle for, for my home community. And, and, uh, and to have God speak to me in October saying there's gonna be a need later on. So that's the area I'm from. And uh, I left there and we moved down to, to uh, Red Lake, Red Lake, a mining community, um, uh, when I was about six years old, seven years old. And I grew up there. And then at 18, I joined the military and uh, the, the Air Force uh, element. And uh, I ended up learning Russian during my 21 years that I was there. And I even taught it in the, in, in the military school. And I'd tell you more, but you know, you know what they say, can't tell you more or else. <laughs> I'd be, I would be, first of all, found out, I would be guilty until proven innocent. 
So, so it would have to require me to do drastic things. But anyways, that was, that was years ago. So I, I, I resigned in 1990. And, uh, but even in the military, I ended up joining the Military Christian Fellowship. We had Bible, Bible studies in every uh, place I were at, even the top secret building I was on, a civilian building in, in Toronto or in Ottawa, where I was seconded. Uh, I, I end up having Bible studies with the with the Secret Service and so on, leading them, and we had newsletters going across to 1,400 members of, from all all the different military units, whether Canadian, American, or whatever. So so I so two weeks into it, I don't know if anybody has ever had the privilege to be a, a radio host on a on a radio program, preaching poorly and playing all kinds of gospel music. Uh, 500 miles from the North Pole. That's where I was at, alert. And God got me to start my ministry then, even though I was trying to hide from everybody because they would, they would persecute me knowing I was there. So that was that. And then uh, then when I um, went to, uh, retired in 1990, I went to Eastern, uh, the first class that had the bachelor's degree. I, I did that in three years, four-year course. I rushed through it. And pioneered a congregation in Curve Lake, Curve Lake First Nations, just out north of Peterborough. That still exists. And um, and then I, I became, then I went on to master's, the master's degree at um, at Tyndale. And then a, a semester or two at Queen's School of Theology. So I have Pentecostal, middle of the line, and liberal theology in, under my belt. And, People say that's why you're confused, Levi. But uh, but I I I I say that's old age, and uh, and also started um, um, working with um, Shantyman International nationwide as First Nations director, and was at National Native Bible College as president after Ross Miracle for four years and set up the program that's I think that you're carrying on Dan which is yeah the same ones so so uh, before that it was people coming in and teaching what they wanted to teach but, but I wanted something that was a little bit more more um, uh, well accepted so that the, the students would be well trained and, and and so on so we we had a great time with that and uh, and then we started the, the church in Toronto also one of my students a Korean he had the vision to start a congregation in Toronto. So that started in 2000. So we're in our 22nd year. And, uh, and during that time, we also set up uh, short-term missions teams that went uh, across the country, across the Northern States, uh, 700 short-term missions participants from the Korean churches, from, from uh, uh, Washington, New York City, Ottawa, Montreal, uh, to go and, and, and spend a, a, a a week or so on the reserves and had tremendous results. And we targeted the, the communities that were, um, that had kicked out the churches in the past. Some, a lot of the ones we went to and so we were uninvited and that violates mission protocol. Uh, but but God just opened the doors, kicked the doors open so often that the next thing you know, the, the process developed to, to bring the message. And, uh, and so, um, I've also had Hope Link International as part of the board member, uh, and we we sent teams out to various communities to to have leadership training and uh, and instruction for 
for our First Nations people. Uh, we, and, and so it's been, been an exciting time. And uh, we've also started a, um, um, Abra, uh, another Bible college, North American Aboriginal Bible college, which is struggling right now because of COVID. But I was teaching that in Toronto to whoever will for free and, and so on. And I was amazed at the students. They would sit there for four hours straight and I'd be wanting a break, but they were so intent that we just kept going. But of course we had cookies and coffee and tea there too. So, but, but it was, it was an exciting time. Yeah. I, I so wish I could, that back in. I wish I could send some uh, Zoom coffee and cookies to each of you, but you'll have <laughs> to you. take care of yourselves. Hey, this, this podcast uh, is, uh, as I review the, um, uh, the stats, uh, about 85% of our listeners are Canadian, about 10% are American and 5% to the ends of the earth. Uh, and uh, as we talk about Canada and, uh, you know, uh, about uh, understanding how God is at work in Canadian cities, I think a good background question uh, that I would posed to any of you to respond to is um, if, if I'm not a, a First Nations, Métis, or um, Inuit person, uh, I may not understand all of the diversity and complexity of the Indigenous population. So First Nation, how many uh, nations are in the First Nation? And, and then tell me about uh, Métis and, and Inuit. Who wants to so. go ahead, Jim? Probably get started with that. I think um, it's good to, to note that uh, our nations are very diverse. Uh, if, and it's a difficult question to answer and I'll explain why. Like if you go to, let's use Europe as an example. We can clearly see in Europe how many nations are there. We have very clear, uh, you know, borders, uh, geographical areas, languages, and you can understand the differences in all linguistic groups. You know, the difference between people from Ireland, people from Scotland, people from Germany, and it's very clear and you can understand all the differences between those different cultures and the languages. On our side, one way to answer their question is to say that there's about 630 First Nations, give or take in Canada, about 63 First Nations in Manitoba. Uh, but these are these are what we call First Nations because we're replacing the word reserves, right? So instead of saying First Nations, we instead of saying reserves, we say First Nation. But uh, but we have, remember, for reserves are a construct of the Indian Act, and a lot of times these reserves are created against our will and not necessarily in our traditional territories. And so you have some mixtures of different families and different groups and, and that kind of a thing. So it becomes really mixed up, kind of a thing. Um, the Royal Commission report on Aboriginal peoples breaks this down a little bit. And, and it's a good source of reading I recommend for any of our listeners. It talks about the history in terms of, of why we are where we are. And that question would be a lot easier um, had we had taken a different approach and, uh, and recognized the indigenous governance and nations, geographical territories that existed. Um, and so, yeah, so it's difficult to say now. And part of reconciliation is actually the reconstructing of all those nations, barriers, cultures, and, and how they are different. And so, uh, so that's the First Nation side. For Métis, uh, you can differentiate Métis by capital M Métis and small m Métis. 
capital MAT is uh, people that have, uh, you know, they're a mixture of uh, First Nation and, and non-First Nation. Uh, tradi traditionally around the Red River area, they have a, a distinct culture. Their language is Machif. But then you also have small MAT, which is just the word meaning mixed. And so that means any, any Indigenous and any non-Indigenous sort of blend. And so you have that all across Canada, not necessarily tied to a, a, a specific area. And then for Inuit, you have, uh, so these are, these are people that are not First Nation and they're not Métis. They're living in the North and uh, the Northern parts of Canada. Their traditional areas uh, are uh, Inuktitut and uh, uh, just uh, the Northern areas of, of Canada. And so, so that's a quick breakdown of, of all those of different groups. Um, and you uh, and and Levi, I believe, are uh, full-blooded. Uh, uh, Dan, you are a, a mix of cultures, as as you mentioned, including Mohawk. Um, but for many uh, Indigenous cultures, um, particularly today, Christianity uh, is perceived by some to be the enemy uh, because of the historical cooperation between. Uh, the churches and, and government and uh, Canada's political systems, uh, the abuse of residential schools, the sometimes blurred lines created um, by uh, Christians who were against culture, uh, you know, rather than uh, looking for Christ in the culture, there was uh, often a, a, a a history of imposing uh, white culture, uh, colonializing, uh, and that kind of thing. And each of you um, are indigenous, um, but you love the Jesus that supposedly brought so much oppression and suffering to your people. Um, do you encounter that kind of misunderstanding uh, within your community? And how are you, how do you process that? What about I, you? Go ahead. I, I guess I'll start by just clarifying that. Um, so I'm I'm small and Métis. I, I'm First Nation status, First Nation, uh, uh, and the, the difference between status and non-status is a whole thing in and of itself. But status, First Nation, uh, small and Métis. My mom is Hungarian Ukrainian, and my father is OG Cree from Sachko Lake First Nation, and we speak uh, we speak OG Cree. Uh, but to answer answer your question, I think that uh, there is uh, that's the content of the course that I that I teach at, at Horizon is it takes thirty credit hours to scratch the surface of that question, and I think it's because it's complicated. Uh, you know, it's it, it the core message of of the gospel has nothing to do with, uh, you know, with colonialism and with political agendas. And I think the problem is that as Canadians, it's important for us to know church history. It's important for us to know Canadian history, world history, and, and that kind of thing. Because the church from the time of Jesus until now, they've mixed different things. There's been different political agendas and, and activities that have taken place. And that's one of the reasons for the, the reformation, the great reformation of Martin Luther. And so, um, and so we see that now we have to really clearly think about what is the true message of the gospel, untainted, the gospel of, of the scriptures. And so what we see with residential schools, 
and the Indian Act and all these terrible things. It's the merging of the church with the political agenda of uh, you know the nations that uh, that came here initially welcomed, but but then things things went uh, a different direction, and so and so part and that's there's a huge huge uh, amount of things to cover to really unpack the question. Like, what are the political forces that shape things? Like, what are the the legal um, you know uh, the legal damages that that have happened? How we've interpreted our law? How we understood? Uh, how to govern ourselves and all of, and the church is mixed in all of this. And so I think the key thing is to recognize what does Jesus say about himself in scripture? How does Jesus present himself? And, and what is, what is, how, what does it mean to show the love of God in this day after all this has happened? And so that's sort of a, an ongoing, really long discussion for a lot of people. Anything uh, Levi or Dan that you'd want to add to that? Uh, could could I could I just give an example? When mm -hmm. we went to Bearskin uh, last October, my sister, who's also a pastor um, and a nurse, and she ended up setting up the telehealth networks during the time and, and helped start the Ontario School of Medicine as an Aboriginal um, uh, worker. Um, when we went there, we got we were called. To the nursing station because somebody was having problems and the, one of the council members asked us to come and pray for them so we went there and we saw this in operation the patient was there and we prayed with him he calmed down a bit and 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 uh, it was great and the nurses were there and then they said okay we've got the doctor on the line on on the video and and they wheeled the video over and brought the doctor right into where the patient was. And the patient was doc talking face to face with the doctor, FaceTiming with the doctor. And the amazing peace that came over and confidence that everything was gonna be okay on the face of that, that patient. Because now all of a sudden, the guy with all the information, all the training was there standing there and telling the nurses what to do and all, reading all the things. And, and I said, that's what we should be doing as Christians. Is our, our, it's not about us at all. It's bringing God into the room. And that's what happened to my family. Uh, Jesus came to the foot of the bed of my dad because the pastor was, he was working with a pastor, uh, Pentecostal pastor that had, that, that, they couldn't communicate. Dad couldn't speak English and the guy couldn't speak Ojikri. But they worked together, respected each other, but somehow God got through there. And, and overnight, Dad stopped drinking because he used to be a, a horrible fighter and a violent man and, uh, and transformed overnight. His drinking, his alcohol, his cigarettes, everything went out the window immediately. And if we can do that, it throws away all the garbage that has been introduced by the church, the non-essential garbage. And, and that's where it, it behooves us as, as the representatives of Christ to realize that it is not about us, it's about bringing Christ into the picture and let him break the bonds. You know, sometimes we, we think so, so highly of all our training and so on that in our experience and 
what has happened, all the, all our, our, all the things that have happened miraculously, and we start to think it's us that's doing it. It's not. You know, we were fortunate to have the Lord working us. And I didn't mention before, I also went to gatherings of, of medicine men. At the, the largest gathering was 200 medicine men. And in that realm, these were very, uh, people that are very angry at the church. But God brought me to 10 medicine men and somehow they asked me to interpret some dreams they were having and visions. And I ended up interpreting them. It was like, and, and in the midst of a big crowd where everybody was shoulder to shoulder, pushing each other, it was as though we were in a little bubble. Nobody could in, interfere with us. And it was like, all of a sudden I was just representing Christ. And, and, and the thing was, everybody who was in, was, was dressed culturally, <laughs> you know, with, with a lumber jacket and all this stuff. And here I was in a three-piece suit, not a two-piece suit, three-piece suit with polished boots, polished shoes and a trench coat, you know, you know, and I'm thinking of you as I go in, Lord, I should put something native on. But, it, and I asked him afterwards, what, why, why did I have to dress like this? And he said, it was like the Lord said, well, for those that are seeking, it doesn't matter what you're dressed like or how you present yourself. They're list, they're, they want to hear about, about Jesus. They want to know what will set them free. So, so I have been sort of, I guess, uh, and, and I've had many experiences with, with, uh, with traditional uh, leaders, some good, some bad, some, some, some almost violent. And, uh, but God has been gracious. And, uh, and that, that's all we can do. Is, is look beyond the anger they have. I was an atheist for eight years, for seven years, and I was angry at God. Even though my parents had started churches, ten churches in northwestern Ontario, and uh, and in the native language, they were um, they, they they did the perfect thing where where they raised their own funds and and paid for the costs and started the congregations with native leaders and so on. But I got angry at the church. And, but when God broke in, it was as though every piece of anger I had, bitterness at the church was just crumbled before the Lord. And I, that, that was in the military at, at a chapel service, just to take, not really going there for the Lord, just to drop off my daughter to, to learn about Sunday school, see if she would, she would like the church. But God it broke in and everything was just blown apart, just like, uh, the dunamis, the dynamite of the, the Holy Spirit, every bitterness, every anger, every reason for being atheist just, just got destroyed. And that's been 41 years ago. And God has been gracious. So, so that's where we have to realize that as we go to people, we go with the love of God. And we have to go with the love of Christ. And say, Lord, what do you want to say? We may have a whole pile of scriptures bouncing around my head, on our heads, saying what we need to say, but we have to say, find out, okay, out of all this, Lord, is any of this any good? <laughs> Even though it's your word, what is it that you want? The Rhema word that you want for this particular person today, and then start with that. So that's that's and sometimes it takes a while of, of, of waiting before the Lord does bring something that 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 breaks through. And when that happens, that anger and frustration goes out the window. Mm. Um, 
When I think about the uh, Indigenous populations in Canada, and also when I think about the followers of Jesus in Canada, uh, I think about exiles. I think about the Old Testament, uh, God's people uh, living uh, as exiles, sometimes in their own land, uh, as the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans and and uh, whoever was in power um, uh, just took over and suppressed uh, those, those aspects that were so much of things that were sacred to them. And um, when we think about just the abundance of exiles within our borders, coast to coast, uh, and we think about, uh, you know, the, the idea that, um, that uh, we are displaced people in, in some ways, uh, that, that we are uh, in this world, but not of this world. I think, you know, there's some parallels there. And just be interested to, to get some of your thoughts about um, how, to, how to live as exiles in, in, in a place where, um, somebody else says, uh, this is our home and, uh, you'll fit in over here. How do you, how do you process all that? I'll let I, somebody answer this, but I just want to tell you what we call our reserves in our native language. Mm -hmm. We call them that means leftovers. We're living on leftovers. Yeah. <laughs> so, in yeah. A way, it's, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I it's agree. Yep. That's a good question. I'll, I'll pass it on to, to one of the others. Dan, you got uh, something on the tip of your tongue there? Yeah. Yeah, you know, when um, you're talking about that in, in exiles, um, my mind kept going to how I, I feel much of, of Hebrew history can be seen as paralleling like indigenous existence. Um, both are steeped, you know, within a tribal culture, um, there's a shared experience in, in systemic efforts to either be exterminated or at the very least to be assimilated into, you know, the dominant culture. Uh, you shared some examples there in the preamble for this question. Um, but, you know, something I feel is even more significant, although it's, it can be subtle, is really it, is the shared interpretation um, I think of how to interpret the outside world. Uh, Hebrew people had this concept, you know, of the nefesh, right? That, that everything is connected. Um, whereas you had the predominant, say, Greek world um, thought of really compartmentalizing everything. Um, and that was really foreign to, to the Hebrew as it was and is uh, within the indigenous culture. Um, like there really is an insistence on homogeneity of thought, uh, both within the, the Hebrew traditional thought and indigenous thought that, that we're all in this together. It, everything's co connected. All life is connected. Creation is connected. Um, indigenous, right? We see ourselves as part of the land, not, not above it. Um, and, and so we're, we're part of it. And so like feeling feeling whole in order to, to be at peace, having harmony really cannot come 
without all of those things being in harmony as well. And, and so I, I liken it to the, the aching of, of the believer recognizing that this is not our home, that we're just passing through. Um, um, it, I mean, it, it really sounds an awful lot like, like the Jewish concept of, of, you know, Selah, where there's this complete wholeness um, of being at peace shalom. Uh, with everything. Yeah, yeah shalom. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and then, and then you, you know, the thing we want to talk about today, um, and maybe Jim, I'll, I'll go to you. I know you have to, um, leave the call early, but, uh, I just maybe want to feel the next thought to you. Uh, when we think about the transition, uh, from a, an indigenous, uh, upbringing, uh, to, uh, moving to living in an urban center, um, what kind of uh, effect uh, is that a positive? Is that a negative? How how do uh, indigenous people thrive in the city? Um, unpack that a bit for me, Jim. I wrote. Um... Uh, a research paper called Indigenizing the Cooperative Model as uh, one of the things I was doing just as I, I was wrapping up my MBA. Part of the research that I was doing was looking at the rates of people moving from their First Nation to the city. And we can see that in, in the Winnipeg context, there was a, a greatest shift around the 60s and 70s. And, you know, you can sort of see that, see that uh, the data sort of pool around that area. At the beginning of the century, there really weren't that many. And so you have to look at the reasons for people leaving. And part of it was uh, the really strict um, uh, challenges of the Indian Act. So at the, and, and Canada became a nation in 1867. In 1876 is when you saw the Indian Act for the very first time. And that version of the Indian Act is a lot stricter than the one that we see now, but it's still in the same purpose. It's meant for assimilation. And so you had things like the pass system and the permit system. You had it where people were not allowed to leave at all without permission from their Indian agent. They couldn't buy things without permission from the Indian agent. You know, they couldn't uh, can go out to hunt, leave the reserve to hunt without permission. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't buy things cooperatively. So they're excluded from, from the growing economy uh, of Canada, you know, after partnership in the fur trade and all the years prior leading up to that. And even in the face of all the treaties that were made, the number of treaties and uh, the Robson treaties and uh, you know, way even further back to the, the Treaty of Niagara and, and these types of things. And so in the face of everything that was promised, you see this. And so, so you have people, now you ha so you have people that are grouped in what you know, Reverend Beardy calls the leftovers. You have people that are pulled into these areas that are a lot of, in a lot of cases, there's not a whole lot of use to these lands. They're not tied to resources intentionally. They're intentionally placed in these places so that other groups, other people groups within Canada that were coming can have the best access to lands and resources. And in some cases, when it was discovered that resources were found, they were up and rooted or they were flooded. And so there's all kinds of damages that are done intentionally. But, but the thing is, people are not noticing this because people were, because indigenous peoples were not considered human beings until around the 1950s or so. 
um, and then shortly after they're given the right to vote, you know, and so in, in the in the late 1950s and 60s. And so now people, because they can vote, now people are paying attention that we have human beings in the North and we need to do something to help them. And so the Indian Act was changed to open up movement. And so now people started coming to the urban centers in, in hope of finding a better life and finding em employment, not because they wanted to leave. They would much prefer to stay in their homes they much would prefer to stay in their in their in their territories with their families that they've always lived because there's a huge connection to land in place um, because they've been living for centuries and the land is part of their economy and how they understand how they live and uh, it's it's connected it's a deep part of their identity but leave because they they were sort of forced to they they a lot of them had no other choices and so and so from that time until now there wasn't a lot of opportunities. People didn't understand the historical background. The treaties were something that were understood maybe by a few people in Canada's elite, but not by the, 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 gener the general population as a whole. As it is today, people don't know the treaties. They don't know about these stories of floodings and, and all these different things. It's, it's largely hidden even today from the general population. So you have people that are disadvantaged in urban centers as well. So if you look at our current Indigenous peoples living in, in Winnipeg, they're living at the intersection of a whole bunch of different problems that are common to Canadian society, but which disproportionately affect Indigenous peoples. So you have different things like uh, addictions. Uh, you have things that, uh, you know, just like um, unemployment, all of the, all the, uh, all, all the uh, develop of the, um, uh, the everything that defines what it means to be like a healthy individual, you have the intersection of these these root problems that all come into this place of uh, where, where where indigenous peoples meet, and so and so that's the reality that we find ourselves, and so and so for indigenous people to come into the city, so what does it mean today versus years ago? Uh, you know, we're starting to, to come to a place where people are recognizing that, you know, it's not just about, you know, there's no magic bullet anywhere. You know, we need to understand that there are, because these are, are the intersection of tons of different problems, there's a tons of different solutions. And so we have to look at it holistically. And, uh, and, and there's a really good article that uh, Dr. Andrew Gabriel wrote, and uh, him and I wrote a two-part series uh, where no, Jesus is not enough, and then yes, Jesus is enough. Where we look at, you know, Jesus, it's it's a lot of people think, what's the difference between Jesus helping and all the other forms of support that you can get? And and we say, well, it's it's not it's it's not Jesus or it's Jesus and or Jesus with or because Jesus. Because we have to recognize that there are social, political, and legal and intergenerational factors that lead to where we are today in, in urban centers. And so to fix them, we need to have legal, political, uh, you know, social, economic solutions that are uh, with Jesus and Jesus because of Jesus in those areas where Christians want to be involved. And so, uh, and so I think that it's important for us uh, to recognize that, yeah, things are getting better. We have our 94 calls to action. We have UNDRIP that has become law, and uh, we have uh, people like you that are interviewing us to understand how to make things better for, for our people. So we're getting better, but, uh, but, but that's what we have to do. We have to recognize it's an ongoing challenge. 
I, yeah, I think we have to all recognize that, uh, you know, with history being what it is, uh, this is the time that we're living in. And today is the day that we are called to make changes, make differences, uh, grow in our understanding and, and uh, remove barriers. Uh, Jim, I know you have to go, but uh, boy, I really enjoyed uh, getting to meet you here on the podcast. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll be having more of these conversations again in the future. Uh, we bid you adieu. And uh, thanks for uh, being on the podcast. Also, if you have uh, that two-part uh, article, if there's a link online, if that's available, uh, or any uh, things you're involved with, please send uh, me the links and, and I'd be happy to include those in the show notes. Thanks, Jim. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks very much. I will, I'll send it forward and uh, I'll encourage all listeners, uh, sign up for my course at Horizon, 30 credit hours. Won't, won't forget it. Absolutely. <laughs> great seeing you all. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. Come, come to my courses. There's no credit hours. <laughs> 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 we're going to pause in the interview right there and on the next episode we'll be back with part two i just wanted to take a moment at the uh, end of this episode to uh, pay tribute to somebody that i considered to be a friend uh, and uh, actually uh, probably a lot of people that listen to this podcast would feel the same way and that man was laurie gibbons just uh, earlier this week uh, he had had a, a day where he was uh, leading a funeral. Uh, he was at a grandson's birthday party. And then uh, that night uh, passed away, well, early the next morning passed away. Uh, and uh, that man is Laurie Gibbons. Uh, for many years, he was the district superintendent of Western Ontario. And you know, one thing that I always admired about Laurie uh, was uh, his heart uh, towards uh, Indigenous Canadians. Whether it was his uh, friendship with Kenny Salt at the Six Nations uh, Reserve or whether it was uh, traveling, uh, uh, flying into communities like Pickle Lake or traveling across the ice roads to Moose Factory, all through uh, northwestern Ontario Laurie had many, many friendships uh, with Indigenous Canadians. Uh, Laurie reminds me uh, of uh, our Savior, Jesus, who with his disciples would go beyond the borders of uh, his own culture to continually uh, uh, reach out to people um, that were in the, uh, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria in the uttermost parts of the earth. Sometimes that's a geographical uh, step and sometimes that's a cultural step. But uh, Laurie uh, had just retired at the end of December and uh, lived a, a life from the time he uh, surrendered his heart to Jesus at an Andre Crouch concert in the 70s until his last day serving Jesus all the way, um, Lori knew what it was uh, to uh, reach out to people and, and to go farther. And I would just uh, take from Lori's example um, our own need to constantly 
be open to people, uh, the people of other cultures, people that may live right across the street or next door to us, and uh, yet we might think we don't have much in common, but with Jesus, uh, we have uh, the kingdom of God in common with all of humanity, and uh, that is ours to live in, that is ours to give. And uh, what a different story people like Laurie Gibbons make compared to some of the horrible colonial history uh, towards Indigenous people. Uh, we're all part of uh, a ministry of reconciliation, and I would encourage you to be a reconciler. Until uh, the next episode, I'm your host, Kevin Rogers, and you're listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast.